welcome to HMSC Connects, where we go behind the scenes of four Harvard museums to explore the connections between us, our big, beautiful world, and even what lies beyond. My name is Jennifer Berglund, part of the exhibits team here at the Harvard Museums of Science and Culture, and I'll be your host. speaking with James Hankin, a herpetologist and professor of biology at Harvard University. For the last 20 years, he's been the director of the Harvard Museum of Comparative Zoology, but he stepped down at the end of June to focus on his other role as the curator of herpetology. Today, we're reflecting on his many accomplishments as director, as well as the ways in which his fascination with natural history guided him from a young age and how it continues to do so today. Here he is. Jim Hankin, welcome to the show. Hi, Jennifer. How are you? Great. When did you first become interested in the natural world? Well, it was certainly as a young boy, it was surprising to all those around me. I grew up in Queens, New York, in New York City, and my entire family, I guess you would just say they're very urban. They had no experience or tremendous interest in the natural world, and certainly, with a couple of important exceptions I can mention, didn't introduce me to the natural world. But as a young boy, I had pet turtles, I had pet hamsters, I had whatever little animals my mother would allow me to keep in my bedroom. But uh, most importantly, my mother subscribed on my behalf to a series of books that were published by Life magazine called The Natural World. And in fact, I'm talking to you from my office on campus and I'm looking up on my bookshelves and there they are. I've never let them go. You know, every three weeks you would get another one of these books, hardbound, large format, about 100 pages or so. Let's see, one is called The Birds, one is called mm. North America, one is called The Plains, one is called Evolution, one is called The Forest, another The Reptiles, and so forth. And I could not wait for these books to show up. Every three weeks, one would arrive in the mail, and I would just rip it open and read it, not do anything else until I'd gotten through it. It just confirmed that I had some serious interest in the natural world, even as a boy. And that encouraged it. And I think this was just a world that was alien to me, but tremendously attractive and very exotic. Sounds like you may have been a bit of a dreamer when you were a kid, dreaming uh, about other oh, worlds and uh, Yes, of course. I dreamt of going to all these exotic places. I also dreamt of being an all-star baseball player and, and you know, all of my, all of <laughs> like, my sports. Like the best of us. All of my sports accomplishments gradually disappeared as you know, reality set in that I wasn't yeah. big enough or fast enough or strong enough. But there was my interest in the natural world. I could still do that. So I guess I just kept doing that. When did you decide to become a zoologist? I, for a long time, I guess this would have been in high school or maybe a little younger, you know, when people would ask me, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And for a while, I would say, I want to be an animal psychologist, which betrayed more my ignorance. You know, there is no such thing as an animal psychologist. Uh, on a technical side, on the scientific side, we'd say, well, that's an ethologist. Somebody studies animal behavior, which is 
in thinking back, that's what I was talking about. But on the I, other side of that, you might call it like a dog whisperer. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. I, but I don't <laughs> think I, I, I don't. I don't think that's what I was interested in. I wanted to study animals and have what what they do and and this kind of thing. So no, it was most. Thank you. You're trying to bail me out here, but it it was pretty ignorant on my part. And of course, this would this would instill deep panic, sense of panic in my parents. They couldn't imagine what this was going to be and how I could be able to support myself eventually. It was when I finally went to college, I started in upstate New York at the State University of New York at Binghamton. I declared myself as a biology major. And again, I was still drawn to animals. I didn't like it in Binghamton at that university very much. And I made a wonderful decision, which was to transfer as a junior to University of California at Berkeley, which really transformed my life in many ways. And soon after getting in Berkeley, I became affiliated informally with a university-based museum, very much like the one that we have here, the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Berkeley. It's called the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology. And they really encourage students to get involved in their programs in various ways. And I started taking courses in zoology. I had declared myself a zoology major. And, you know, I just indulged. I took as many courses as in this area as I could. And it just was pretty clear that I was going to go on in zoology. You eventually got into nature photography. Did that begin during this period? My, I guess it was my sister and older sister and her husband gave me a Nikkor mat. This was an early model of Nikon, 35-millimeter film-based photography. It's a spectacular camera. They gave me a Nikromet when I was, uh, I don't know, 12 years old or 13 years old. And I took it to summer camp, and I took all kinds of pictures. And I still have many of them. And when I look at those pictures, I say, holy cow, I was really good. These were quite accomplished, really expert images in what I managed Mm. to capture action and so forth. So I had an interest in photography. But the nature photography side of things really didn't kick in until, I don't even know if it would be fair to say, as an undergraduate, certainly when I was a graduate student. Again, this is in the day before digital photography. I started doing some exotic field work for my graduate studies. Exotic meaning doing uh, field trips to collect amphibians for my dissertation and assisting other people. I was mostly in Mexico and Central America at that point. I also went to Australia and, you know, a few other places within Mm -hmm. the United States. And, you know, all other biologists who do field work, you bring along your camera. And I started taking pictures, and many of them were quite good, with all modesty aside. And occasionally there'd be some photo contest that I figured, well, I'll send in a few pictures. And I started winning these contests. And Mm. I had a, as an undergraduate or beginning graduate student, I had a photo on the cover of Natural History magazine. And then I decided to contact a natural history photography agency in New York City. And I met with them and they agreed to take me on. And I listed photos with them and they would start selling them. They'd send me my payment. They would get a commission. And every time I'd get a check for 200 bucks, I'd buy two or three lenses for $200. So it was yeah. a, definitely a money-losing strategy. <laughs> it's the curse of the photographer. Right. But, you know, I gradually accumulate more specialized equipment and lenses and so forth. And I'd take more pictures. And I was, you know, doing a lot. And also, as a graduate student, graduate school can be a pretty intense 
endeavor. It certainly was for me. And at Berkeley, I stayed on for graduate school. I mean, it was wonderful, but it was intense. And on Saturdays, I would take off, if you will, Saturday afternoon and inventory my photographs and label them and send them a package to the agent. And it was one part of the week, you know, I wasn't relying on selling photos to, to eat. Mm-hmm. So it was not that much pressure. And it was a kind of a release, a way to relax aside from my graduate studies. And I just continued to do it. And, you know, I guess I was pretty good at it. I would sell photos in various magazines, calendars, books, and so forth. And that was, of course, coincided. There was a tremendous amount of interest in biodiversity growing then. And so there was a market for this stuff. In graduate school, I was both a nature photographer and a graduate student. I love this aspect of your life because it's just something I never knew about you. (laughs) It's it's so (laughs) cool. Well, look, the sad part is I do a little bit of photography still, but photography these days is so accessible. You can take spectacular photos with your iPhone or your things. And on the scientific side, it's so accessible. The world is awash (laughs) in excellent (laughs) photographs. And also the sad part is as I've gotten busier on the administrative side and with my professorial duties, I just have less time to indulge myself in photography. I still sell, I'll sell a picture or so, but I don't, uh, I no longer send new images to the agents. Well, I don't think there's any replacement for a good eye. And the best photographers these days, I think are photographers who really develop their skills in the time of film photography, because you had to be much more conservative with your shots, right? Oh, and you also had to worry about light and you could manipulate things. I mean, you can do that today, but it was part and parcel of being a good photographer was using filters or choosing your particular lenses and lighting and so forth. And also, I think it's related to the fact that my professionally speaking as a scientist, I am by training and formally a morphologist. I have interest in form and structure. And I just get aesthetic pleasure from looking at animal shapes Hmm. and sizes, not just externally, but I study the skeleton and and looking at bones and so forth. So I know that that's related. You say you have a good eye. Mm -hmm. I think I'm sensitive to visual form, whether it's looking at a specimen or taking a photograph and framing it and so forth. And they're probably very likely related. There was actually a time when you were finishing up grad school, where you were considering going into nature photography full-time, making that a career for yourself, Mm -hmm. but you ultimately sidestepped it. So Mm -hmm. tell me about that. Like, What happened and why did you ultimately decide to go into academics? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Well, I was very much on the fence with respect to what I should do next as I was approaching the end of graduate school. I had a great lack of confidence in my abilities, and I could not see myself being a professor. I envisioned all the responsibilities that an academic professor would have, beginning assistant professor and so forth. And I I looked at myself and I said, there's no way you can do that. So first off, I didn't apply for any jobs, any academic jobs as I was approaching the undergraduate school. Mm -hmm. And I applied for postdoctoral fellowships, again, in my discipline. But I only applied for two. And I said, well, if I get either of these, I'll then decide if I want to continue. But if I don't get either, then I will just go to nature photography. But I was really torn. I was really, really torn. I wasn't even sure if I should apply for the postdoctoral fellowships or not. I just go Hmm. ahead and become a, you know, it sounded very exotic and romantic to being a dashing nature photographer, flying all over the world and this kind of stuff. Well, as it turned out, I got both fellowships. 
I was offered both <laughs> scholarships. Okay, what to do? So I declined one, I took the other, which was at um, Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, a great place to be. And that's what I did. I went there. But okay, that only supported me for in the end two and a half years. And still, you have to say, well, what's next? Well, the job market, academic job market at that day was extraordinarily tight, really, really hard. There were business schools in those days who were, they were offering MBAs for science PhDs who could not land a job, retooling them as Mm -hmm. MBAs and so forth. And in fact, I even got the application for one of those programs. I figured, well, okay, maybe I'll do this. But then there was nature photography and I was still doing that. And I went into, I passed through New York City at some point in this interval. And I went in and talked to the agent. I was listed with probably the top natural history photography agency in the world at that point. It's amazing. They really really knew the discipline. It's called Bruce Coleman. I don't know if they're still even around at this point. Well, they must be around because they still have my pictures. And I went in, I knew one of the uh, agents there and I just mentioned, I said, look, I need some, not career advice, but I guess I'd appreciate your assessment. You know, I've finished my doctorate. I'm postdoc. I'm trying to decide what next and I'm applying for academic jobs or will. But also, I'm thinking of becoming a nature photographer full-time. What do you think? And I don't think he sat back and laughed, but he told me that most of the people who list uh, photos with this agency are amateurs or hobbyists. It's a very small number of people who manage to turn nature photography into a a satisfactory or sufficient career to pay Mm -hmm. the bills. And basically, I came away from that meeting realizing, well, I thought academia was really competitive and tough to crack, but (laughs) sounds like nature photography is no better. (laughs) And I was also fearful that, as I mentioned to you a few minutes ago, for me, nature photography was a form of relaxation Mm -hmm. and uh, a hobby. And I suddenly thought, gee, if I had to rely on doing this for a certain amount of income, it became my profession. It might take the joy out, at least partly. And I decided, well, maybe I won't do that. But in the end, it came down to as my within three or four months of finishing my postdoctoral fellowship in Canada and my visa was about to end. The only Mm -hmm. thing for certain I knew I had to leave the end of June to come back to the United States because my visa would expire. A job opened up at the University of Colorado in Boulder. I was contacted, invited to apply. I applied. Within a few weeks, they invited me for an interview. I interviewed. A week later, they offered me the job, and I said yes. So, you know. It was so it worked out. Decision made. (laughs) That's just, you know, fortunately, that came along, and they hired me, and I took it. If they hadn't hired me and I had no other opportunity, then I would have come back to the States and probably started doing nature photography for a living. But I just decided this was the safer course, if you will. You were at UC Boulder for 16 years, so mm-hmm. you know, quite a while before you came to the MCZ. What brought you to the MCZ? Well, to answer that, I have to just explain what an important institution the Museum of Comparative Zoology is in the discipline of zoology. I mean, it's like Mecca. It's hallowed ground for professional zoologists in terms of the impact that people from the MCZ have had on the science of zoology and evolutionary biology since its founding in 1859 by Louis Agassiz. Now, Louis Agassiz is a notorious figure in many respects, 
and not a very sympathetic figure in many respects. One of the greatest ironies is that he founded the MCZ. He was a fierce opponent of Charles Darwin and in part founded the MCZ and certainly attempted to amass enormous, huge collections of animals as a means of disproving this troublesome theory that this guy Charles Darwin was, that was preponderant <laughs> about descent with modification and natural selection. And it's turned into, over time, a world center for the study of evolutionary biology. I'm sure Agassiz's spinning in his grave over this. <laughs> but there have been you know, a lot of very important professionals, scientists have been trained at MCZ over the 160 years. A lot of the really eminent scientists have been curators here and directors in the MCZ. It's just very much a storied institution. So, you know, rare is the person. There are some who are given an opportunity to join the MCZ and don't take it. I mean, there may be many instances or when it happens, there may be very good reasons for doing so. There weren't sufficiently compelling reasons in my case. I mean, I loved living in Boulder. I'll tell you, I didn't move to Boston because of the weather compared to Boulder <laughs> or the scenery, but I just was tremendously honored and you know, felt I had to say yes. Also, I was, as I mentioned earlier, I trained as a graduate student in a university-based zoology museum. This is at Berkeley. And at Boulder, we had a museum, but it wasn't all that active, really wasn't a major player. And the idea of returning to being embedded in a natural history museum at a university it was very attractive for me. So I said yes. And what was the MCZ like when you first arrived? MCZ, quite honestly, was in a low ebb in that it was understaffed, even at the faculty curator level, due to various instances of retirement. And at least one person tragically died in the saddle, uh, so to speak. He had a heart attack as a faculty curator and passed away. And so it was recognized that the time place needed to be rejuvenated. And in fact, I was one of four new people who were brought in within a year or two of each other, all at the senior tenured level. I mean, this was a massive hiring initiative to rejuvenate the place and bring in fresh blood. And so... There were not many graduate students and so forth, and it really needed an injection of activity. And fortunately, the administration here agreed and were willing to do something to make that happen. And again, I was one of four people. And then there were other hires associated, but also the facilities were, and this had been appreciated for a long time, facilities were both substandard and outdated and insufficient. I mean, the collections were falling on top of one another. We were just bursting at the seams here, and we really needed some new facilities. The science of natural history, collection-based research, changing dynamically, and it has over the last 40 or 50 years. Laboratory-based work is much more common, genetic work, molecular biology, and you need sophisticated laboratories for this kind of work, digital imaging, computer-based stuff. So the facilities at MCM, the building originally, the oldest part of the building was built in 1859, and other wings were added subsequently, but with the exception of one wing that was added in the 1960s, that's called the Museum of Comparative Zoology Laboratories, there really hadn't been any new growth in the, or renovations of the space to any considerable extent. So it was in pretty sad shape and in need of great modification, but tremendous potential. You know, that's what you always look for is not necessarily what things are like, but what could they be if you had the resources to make it happen? And there was tremendous potential here. 
And so when did you come on as director? I think there was a general recognition at the time that the director who was in place when I was hired had been the director for almost 20 years. And this is Jim McCarthy. This is Jim McCarthy, who, a renowned who was climate scientist, renowned climate scientist, and oceanographer, wonderful man, very helpful to me. Recently He's deceased. He's recently deceased, uh, not man. well, a little more than a year ago when I was hired. I was hired mm -hmm. as a curator and a faculty member. But I think the end of my first year, Jim had announced that he was indeed going to step down, and I was uh, contacted regarding my interest in succeeding him, and I said yes. And then that decision, I think, was made pretty quickly, but again, I'm piecing together the dates here. I had then, I call it my apprenticeship to Jim. <laughs> it was announced but that I would succeed Jim, but not for another year. So he continued on for one more year. and. You know, he would drag me along to meetings and show me what was happening. And this was very considerate of him because the MCZ for university-based museum, it's huge. And it's mm -hmm. very complicated, very wealthy institution, very complex finances. And you need a long time to come up to speed on how to deal with things. Yeah. And in I fact, mean, how many, just thinking of the enormity of the collection, how many specimens do we have total? We don't have it counted down to individual ones. We commonly say it has over 21 million it's specimens. incredible. <laughs> so it's the largest university-based zoology museum by far. So it was a year's my apprenticeship to come up to speed enough to have him step down and me not tear down the place. But it still took several years after that before I really felt that I understood the place and how to run it and so mm -hmm. forth. In fact, I've only been, this partly explains why there have been so few directors. I'm only the ninth director since 1859. Wow, so really? I've been it for that... 20 years and I'm barely wow. hit the median. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting out early. What are you most proud of accomplishing over your 20 years? I would say there's two things that are of fundamental importance to a university-based institution such as ours. The first is hiring extremely talented and capable and innovative curators. Now, in the MCZ, as is the case in, I think these days, most university-based zoology museums, all of our curators are tenure-track faculty. So you're hiring someone who will be part of an academic department teach courses, undergraduate courses, graduate courses, will mentor graduate students, will operate a research lab, will apply for grants, do all of that stuff, which is the standard requirements of a faculty member in science at any institution. But on top of that, they are curators of a particular department in the museum. So I'm, in addition to being director, I'm the curator in herpetology, amphibians and reptiles. We have a curator of birds, curator of mammals, and so forth. We are on a university campus, and part of our mission is to push the boundaries of knowledge and make new discoveries. And the best way, most effective way to accomplish that is to hire really capable, really talented faculty curators. And we've hired many since I joined. It's not my doing solely. I can help prepare the ground and try to steer things in a certain way, promote a particular search to get permission to do it. But a lot of people have a say in the ultimate outcome, so I don't want to suggest that I deserve total credit. But as director, you can 
help to make these searches happen and bring them to a successful outcome. And we've hired some spectacular people. I think of the last six people we've hired, three are in the National Academy of Sciences, Mm -hmm. U.S. National Academy of Sciences. They've received many awards. We've also been able to diversify the ranks of the faculty curators. So these are all very important, and I'm glad that I was able to participate in that, and I consider that one of my achievements. The other thing, given what I said earlier about the substandard facilities that were in place when I came here, we've been able to do substantial renovation of the collection spaces in particular, but also offices research laboratories. We've created a shared digital imaging facility. There was nothing like that before. We created a genomics, a frozen tissue collection facility. There was nothing like that before. And then, you know, we have uh, Harvard, in the time I was director, put up this huge building right next door to the MCZ. It's called Mm -hmm. the Northwest Building. It's for sciences and engineering in general. But I was able to get my finger in there and we got 50,000 square feet in the building for collections. So we have this spectacular state-of-the-art collections facility where we've been able to put many of our specimens. And they're now wonderfully housed and safely housed and climate controlled and so forth. So, you know, those are the two things. If you get creative people and give them the physical environment and support that they need to do their work, then you just stand back and get out of their way. And that's what I've tried to do. You're stepping down as the director of the MCZ. Yes, in 36 hours, the end of June. Wow, that's that's crazy. (laughs) But who's counting? But who's counting? (laughs) First off, what are you going to do now that you're not, I mean, I know you're going to Well, I'm, I'm not retiring. I'm giving up my directorship after 20 years, voluntarily, I'll point out. And I will go back to being a plain old faculty member and a curator. I'll remain curator in the museum. So I'm not going anywhere. What are your hopes for the future for the MCZ? The MCZ is in a good place right now, but I, I want to remind everyone that We can't afford to rest on our laurels. Science is changing constantly. Biodiversity science is changing constantly. The natural history community world is changing constantly. And we have to continue to work hard. We're in a good place, but there are still things that I know of right now that we need to work on or should work on to continue to improve. And look, we have, I won't put it like competitors, just there are a lot of other wonderful natural history museums, both university-based and government-sponsored. And we're all part of a large community. And we're all trying to strive to improve and adopt new technologies and new procedures. So we have to constantly do this. We can't just say, okay, we're be satisfied with where we are because we'll be left behind. You mentioned other institutions. And I have to bring up that your wife is she's is the curator of she's the curator of birds of birds at the smithsonian at the, at the u.s national museum yes the national museum of natural history in washington dc smithsonian institution yes so she's on the other side she's at a competing institution although i'm sure they would say they're just such a giant place they may not consider us competition but <laughs> yes she's a curator a very uh, talented and accomplished scientist in her own right And I have to bring up, this is such a tangent, but it's just so cool that I have to talk about it. So you spent the pandemic in her houses in Virginia, obviously, by the Smithsonian. And so, of course, you spent the pandemic down there. 
Mm-hmm. And you had some interesting housemates, shall I say? Yeah. Um, yes. We yeah. let's see. The pandemic began in March of 2020. At least it began insofar as that's when Harvard campus closed in the middle of March. And I hightailed it down to Virginia. I figured she's got a nice house, nicer than mine up here. And she's a good cook and so forth. So <laughs> she has a detached garage at the other side of the backyard from the house. It's a dilapidated garage. It's falling apart. And I had noticed that it was so dilapidated that there's just some holes appearing in the roof of the garage. And then one day I look at, what's that? There are two black vultures sitting on the roof of her garage. We documented it to the day. We went there and looked at them and so forth. Well, they were not just making a casual stop. They had seen the holes in the roof. They are known to nest in abandoned buildings. And that's just what they did. They actually set up shop in our garage, in the attic of our detached garage, and they raised a family. They produced hatchlings. And the following summer, I decided to toss out a piece of chicken, raw chicken, (laughs) into the backyard. Well, you can imagine they thought this was just dandy. And the next day, I looked out of our kitchen window, and there they were perched on the railing right outside the kitchen door. (laughs) looking in, saying, you know, got chicken. And we started feeding them every day. And we just basically adopted the two adults and their two offspring. And the adults chased off the offspring a few months ago, as they typically do. Mm -hmm. But we've had them, or we still to this day have them around. They come and go as they please, but they just about every day they come by for a meal and we feed them. And that must have been particularly fun and interesting, considering your wife is. Yes, I mean, how lucky! I, you know, I can't imagine (laughs) that we have nice neighbors and they're all in on biodiversity. But I'm not sure that any of them would have tolerated black vultures living on their property. (laughs) And yeah, it was just fortuitous that these birds happened to choose the home of the curator of birds. They they knew they're not. She's not going to force them to leave. Were you taking photos of them? Oh, we took thousands of photos. I put a camera, a video camera inside the attic. We could record them in there. And in fact, you know, this was happening during the pandemic, of course. And the pandemic brought tragedy of untold sizes in many ways, including last fall. It was during the presidential election. And it was things were going crazy with respect to the election. The world was just upside down. And it was very comforting, actually, to have nature at our doorstep and doing normal things. And in fact, right around that time, the Wall Street Journal solicited from their readers stories of how you've coped during the pandemic. I sent in a story and they published it. They sent out a photographer. You asked about photographs. They sent a professional photographer out to the house one day. And, oh, he had a great old time. He was funny. He said he thanked us so much because normally he's up on Capitol Hill taking, you know, <laughs> photos of some lying congressperson or something. Yeah. And, and he just thought this was a wonderful break from doing that. It sounds like it's going to be nice for you to kind of step down and just sort of focus on being a curator for a yeah, while. Yeah, it's very odd. It's nice. And I'm already having withdrawal symptoms. I don't have any regrets or complaints, but it follows up what I just said a moment ago, that so much of what I have been doing for the last 20 years has been responding to demands and business that had to be done. And much of that I'm not going to have to deal with anymore. And so I will be able to structure my day and my week and my month much more according to what I think I should be doing. And that may seem silly, 
But it actually, in terms of adjusting your attitude about when you get up in the morning, what are you going to be doing? It has taken me a little bit of, caught me off guard that I hadn't thought I'd feel this, it's such a strange concept, but I'm sure I'll be able to adjust. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you will. And uh, pick up nature photography again. Yes. Just last Friday, I received word I got a National Science Foundation grant. So that will start sometime this fall. So I have a lot of writing projects that I'd like to return to. So there's plenty of things that will occupy my time and I'll be able to give it the time. Well, I can't wait to see what you do. (laughs) Thank you very much. I'll keep you posted. Jim Hankin, thank you so much for being here. This has been really fun. My pleasure, Jennifer. I enjoyed talking to you very much. Today's HMSC Connects podcast was edited by Amanda Fish and produced by me, Jennifer Berglund, and the Harvard Museums of Science and Culture. Special thanks to the Museum of Comparative Zoology and to James Hankin for his wisdom and expertise. And thank you so much for listening. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you in a couple of weeks.